Hello everyone, welcome back to Breeding the Honeybee. I'm Brent Nixon and today I'm going to be speaking with John Berry. John's from New Zealand and he's part of the Berry family who owns Arateki Honey. Arateki Honey is a large honey packing company that is based in Hawke's Bay on the eastern side of the North Island. They're a family business and at one stage in history they had four generations working alongside each other at the same time. These days, John runs his own business called Berry Bees. He produces comb honey for the local farmer's market, and he's had a lot of experience raising his own queens. I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us today, John, and how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. What's he like over there in Australia? Nice day? We have had a lovely winter. Um, just as I look outside, I can see all my bees flying around the yellow gums now. They're currently flowering, so it's, it's a beautiful day here. Yeah, I wish I was there. It's not very nice here at the moment. Bit dreary, right? Bit dreary, right? Yeah, she's um, actually wet here for the first time in about three years. It's actually truly wet. Wow. Now, uh, John, you've got uh, quite an extensive uh, family history in beekeeping. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, my grandfather had bees right back in the late 1920s in a little place called Neriha, which is down in the Wairarapa. Um, most of you have probably never heard of it, but um, think of a place where there's so much wind that all the trees lean one way. And it wasn't that flash a place to keep bees. Anywhere where there's wind farms is not a good place to keep bees. So when my father was 12, back in, oh, in the early 1940s, they moved up to Hawke's Bay here, which is a, a lot better climate lot warmer and a lot drier and we do get wind but not as bad um, and he just slowly built up the business um, that's Arataki Honey today um, I've still got I've still got the odd box that my grandfather built you know over 70 years ago is that right yeah no it's still bloody years. good Nick too wow yeah so how's it lasted 70 years is it wax dipped yeah, all our boxes are wax dipped, but um, this was made out of native um, white pine or kahikatea. Um, not our overly durable timber normally, but it's um, in a bee box it just seems to last forever. Whereas the, the fast-grown pine that we get these days, doesn't matter what you do to it, you can paint it, paraffin dip it, if it lasts five years you'd be blimmin' lucky. Yeah, wow. So is that um, New Zealand pine, the one, the white pine that you just mentioned, is that not still available to make bee boxes with? Oh, no, that was what's left is, is um, protected. Um, you know, probably 99% of it is being cut down and right. what's left is, is fully protected now. Mm. And so, trees. so in Australia, uh, it's quite popular to buy um, boxes made out of New Zealand pine. So I imagine that's a new species of pine that's been introduced and is grown in plantations. Oh yeah, there's radiata pine. Same, I've seen a lot growing in Australia too. Hmm. There's, there's nothing wrong with it as long as it's not harvested too young, but these days they tend to harvest them at about 25 years old and there's just no, no guts in the timber. If you get boxes made out of radiata pine, if you get some old man pine on somebody's farm that are 
50, 60 years old. They'll last 50 or 60 years. Mm, right. So tell us how long you've actually been beekeeping yourself. Um, full-time, just over 50 years. 50 years. But, um, part-time. Part-time. That I started when I was 15 as a full-time beekeeper, but I, I was working part-time from when I was about eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And so can you tell us Got a little bit... Got my when I was eight. Oh, wow. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about good years and bad years that you've had? I've had more good years than bad years, which is nice. But um, I think one oh two was probably the, one of the worst years I've ever had. Just um, just rained all summer, and there was just no honey at all. And the, the next year was one of the best years I've ever had. Huge crop huge crop of clover and a, an enormous crop, crop of um, manuka honey did over 80 ton of manuka that year and at the time I think I was getting $10 a kilo for it which was just a fortune in those days Is that, um, is that after it was well known around the world or before? It was, when it, was, it was when it was starting to get well known but before all the corporates had really jumped on board so it was it at the time, I was probably getting $4 for clover honey, so $10 for manuka was pretty good. That was, that was, you know, that was, it was just really starting to take off at that point. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't have anybody else competing for sites then, but we were getting, some of those areas we were getting up to 100 kilos of hive, which is pretty phenomenal. I've never seen a crop even close to that. Mm. And you, re- and you think that's because there was a wet year beforehand and then you had a really dry summer afterwards? Um, it, was a, it wasn't a really dry summer. The, the main reason that we had a big crop that year was the biggest competitor for honeybees in New Zealand on the Manuka are native bees, little solitary bees. There's probably a dozen varieties in New Zealand and they can outnumber your honeybees 100 to 1 without any problem at all. Um, if you have two or three good years in a row, the native bees build up to huge numbers and they'll just literally take all the nectar. So that year, that really good year, it was just following a year when the native bees were nothing, you know, up in the hills, it just rained and rained and rained, the manuka didn't flower. So there was nothing for the native bees, which, which specialise in manuka, that's their, their main food. Um, and they just, they didn't die out, but, you know, they went from thousands and thousands just to a handful and that really makes a difference this year was somewhat similar had a mm. really bad manuka season the year before so this year very few native bees so a good manuka crop right now do you have any funny stories you'd like to share about your um career so far <sighs> don't know i'm i did um quite a few years ago now i thought oh i'm sick of New Zealand in the winter I'm going to go and see what Australia's like and they were having a beekeepers conference in, in Orange which is a lovely little town I enjoy visiting Orange mm-hmm. but I thought well I'll go to this conference and I'll be able to see some new speakers you know people I've never heard before because we've got some very good people here but you seem to you know you get to see them all the time and I go to Orange and there's Mark Taylor and Michelle sorry <laughs> Mark Goodwin and Michelle Taylor from New Zealand 
that mm-hmm. I've just seen a few weeks before, and there they are in Orange giving the same talk. So, <laughs> oh, that's convenient. <laughs> and I don't know if it's funny or not, but I've done a few stupid things. I remember bringing a, <laughs> I had a foul brood hunt hive to bring home one day back in the day before we had straps and that sort of thing. Four hive full of honey and going along the road. Next minute, crash! There it is, all over the road. Yeah, right. And just as well in those days, we were the only commercial beekeeper on the Coromandel Peninsula because mm-hmm. nobody wanted manuka in those days. If you did it now, you'd have a thousand hives infected. But those days, there were no hives within twenty miles. Yeah, that and I've blown myself up a few times burning <laughs> foul brood hives. Really? And mixed petrol and flames. Oh yeah. Yep. Tell My mate said I just disappeared. Well, I had had a a six-hive foul brood hive to burn. I had it dug a hole and stacked it up over the hole, and it was a bit of a wet day, and it just wouldn't light, and it wouldn't light. A bit of petrol won't do any harm. Pour a bit of petrol in, and just boom, went about 15 metres in all directions. Again, not a good way to control foul brood. And my mate said that I just disappeared in the flames, but I was standing at the end of the box, and if you... Oh, if you wow. ever need to try it yourself, always stand at the ends because they blow out the sides. Yeah. Apparently, <laughs> I don't um, think I don't think I will try the, it. But <laughs> at the ends, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's one well, of the few times I've had shorter hair than normal. Yeah, I might Got I might learn from up. you there <laughs> and not try that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, there's right. not much stupid I haven't done over the years, but I've learned my lesson most of the time. Yeah, well, it's always a big learning curve, isn't it? Um, I've lost a, I've lost a lot of my hives um, various times by doing silly things as well. I remember my very first year beekeeping. Um, I, got, I caught all these swarms and and uh, set them up on my mate's um, property, and I was really excited. Is for a month I caught all the swarms from around the Geelong area here in Victoria, and um, I set them up all all over his property. And it came back a week later, and the cows had knocked everyone over. <laughs> So oh, I, learned, yeah. I learned to I learned to stay away from cows and horses and things after that. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. I've lost many hives to cows. Um, deer are some of the worst. Oh really? When they um, yeah, when they especially the stags that they grow grow on for velveting, and when they um, you know they cut the velvet off, but they there's still a little bit of the the stub of the antler left behind, and when they're ready to drop that. Um, they scratch their blimmin', those little nubs on the on the beehives, and they just just wreck them. Not a good idea. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll have but to I've watch had out. Hives, I've had picked whole yards up off fences from hurricanes. You know, it's um, had whole yards flooded away. If as the years go by, you just learn to avoid more and more problems, and haven't had a problem for a long time like that now. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well. Um that's another funny story for me. I uh, last summer there was a sort of a flash fu- a flood event, and um, I had a lot of my hives in an old creek bed, which I wouldn't put them there um, during the winter time. But in the summer, I was I was getting some red gum, and uh, I had an um, a more experienced beekeeper come along and have a look, and and he said, "Why haven't you got these hives up on pallets?" Because I just sort of put them down individually. And I said, oh, it'll be fine, you know. And he's like, no, if you get any water come through here, you'll be, you'll be in big trouble. And so I thought, oh, you know, 
okay. And so I went and got some pallets and put them under. And sure enough, about a week later, big flood came through and I only had three that weren't on pallets because I ran out. And those three just got carted off and uh, two I never saw again, just gone. <laughs> So um, I was really so lucky. I, I could have lost. You're talking about. I, I could have lost. I could have lost a lot. But he came along and he's like, "Get yourself some pallets under there." And I thought, actually, I had I know of another beekeeper here in Australia. The same flood and, and lost quite a few. Um, same time of the year. So yeah, that's a bit of a problem when that happens. I camped in one of those river beats next to some red gums in Australia once, and with friends. And I, I said, "Are you sure this is a good idea?" And they go, "No, no, it hasn't rained here for bloody years." Because got set up nicely and that night it pissed down and we had to pack up and get the hell out of it just got out in time so river bead done's a good idea mm. yeah beautiful tree but you got to watch out um okay so um at what point in your career did you start raising your own queens and how did you learn well my dad, did, um, my dad did most of the grafting here in hawke's bay but um he showed me what to do when I went up to run hides for my uncle up on the Hurricane Plains when I was 19, I had to learn pretty fast when I got up there. So um, it was mainly a matter of practice. But I did go to a three-day course at Flock House, which was a, a government-sponsored course, and it was really excellent. Made some lifelong friends there. Um, it was definitely in the days before health and safety, because I remember one of the, it was. It's a big old complex um, with really old buildings and heaps and heaps of chimneys. And I think every chimney on the place had a swarm in them. And we volunteered to get rid of these damn things. And, you know, they're all um, three or four stories high. And we're just all young fellas with straight up ladders and putting blooming bore bombs down the chimneys to get rid of them and that sort of thing. I should have a blooming bit these days. But um, that was a really excellent course. Yeah. All right. Um, my family, we, one of the things we do different from a lot of people is we use a lot of two-day cells. Okay. So that's two days after grafting. Um, something before, before they catch. establishes in Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah. You graft them, and two days later you use them. Um, and it's one, when you get, you know, with Varroa here, one of the biggest advantages of that is when you use a two-day cell, you end up with a brood break. So you can do a noxalic dribble during that, um, during the broodless period. But the main reason we use it here is there's a lot of very rough roads in the back country of Hawke's Bay. And if you take 10-day cells in your, in your vehicle, they're likely to get um, wing damage and that sort of thing. So with a two-day cell, nothing much can happen to it. The worst you can do is it'll drop out of the cell and you can actually see it's dropped out. Mm. And that wouldn't happen, you know, it wouldn't happen to one in a thousand. Um, they're, you know, they take a little bit longer. You've got a longer queenless period, of course, but it's um, it's a damn good way of, you know, the hive puts all their energy into raising that cell. Um, you get some blooming beautiful queens from two-day cells. I, I still, well over half the cells I use these days would still be two-day cells, even though I don't really need to anymore because I just like the system. Hmm. So how many are in your cell builder, how many of those are you producing at a time? Um, I put 40, I graft 40 cells into each box. Okay, wow, yeah. And once you've, yep. um, once you take them out at, at two days, uh, the, how do you then transport them? Oh, no. Okay, 
all my cell raising is done in a, a full depth box with gauze nailed onto the bottom and a couple of runners for ventilation. And then you just put a sack over the top of that and put the um, a telescopic lid to hold them in. They're right. made up with one, they're made up with one frame of honey, one frame of young brood, and one frame of pollen, and about the, roughly the equivalent of a full box of bees. Right. So you're taking the whole cell builder wherever you need to go. Yep. Right. Yep. It's a very simple process. It's not you know if you're raising tens of thousands of cells. Such a good system, but if you just want, you know, a few hundred cells a day, it's a piece of cake. Right, that's really and interesting. When you use the cells up, you sit. When you, if you use the box of cells up, you've still you've got bees in the box. You just tip them into. A, you find a nice strong hive. You know, if I'm requeening, I do it by killing the queen. Um, so I find the queen, take all the frames out of the out of the hive, tip the bees from the box into the hive, and then shake a whole lot of fresh bees from that fresh hive stick a cell bar in and you can graft as soon as you get home wow okay yep and so how long have you been using that particular method uh, all my life okay so this is the method that was taught to you by your father yep okay right yep and so when yeah, he, you, you you would have been grafting uh, using the, uh, the the German grafting tool back in those days wouldn't you Dad taught me to graft using a piece of wire. Oh, really? Um, okay. Just a little piece of soft wire. You sort of give it a bit of a thwack with a hammer, and then we had an old car radiator. Don't ask me why, but used to just sort of scrape it across that, and it just, just raised the burr on the wire. And it, it worked beautifully, but you could make 10 of them, and one of them would work beautifully, and the other nine wouldn't. Um, that's... One of the few things I've changed is I just got sick of the ones that wouldn't work and I changed to a triple O sable, which I love. Um, I've been using a triple O for oh, probably 25 years now. Right, okay. And Dad always, Dad always grafted. You know, he, um, he grafted up till about four years ago. You know, he was well in his 80s, probably 85 when he stopped grafting. Um, he'd just do it with the outside sitting on a bee box with the sun over his right shoulder but I much prefer to do it inside with a natural light and the last couple of years I've been using two times glasses just to make life easier but um, I thought I would, could use graft with anything but I tried a Chinese grafting tool which a lot of my friends use and I can't, can't do a thing with that it's just I don't know how they do that but um, triple O sables bloody brilliant I wouldn't use anything else personally Okay, that's really interesting. And we also changed from we changed from wax cells, which we used for years, to plastic ones, simply because I actually get better results with the plastic ones. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the and wax cells. The, with gloves on. Okay. Right. So um, the yeah. wax cells. How were you making those? Uh, they were just bits of shaped dowel that sat in some cold water. Yep. And you had a pot of wax that was you know just melted and just dipped it in a few times to lower, build up a bit, dipped them back into the water to cool them down, rubbed them off with your fingers. Sometimes you put a bit of Vaseline on it or something to make it go a bit easier. And then, um, yeah. And how were you, you attaching those to the cell bar? Uh, same as I do with the plastic ones. You just run a, get a spoon, run a 
a line of liquid wax along the top of your bar and just literally stick them on. And then if that, if you want to make them more secure, you just build up that layer of wax around them. Yeah, right. Okay. And you find that the plastic we actually did. works better for you um, in terms of results. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. And I am considering going back to um, wax because I really don't like plastic all that much. It's not good for the environment. But uh, we used to have a lot of trouble when I first started beekeeping. We were raising a lot of queens for Canada. And so we needed a lot of cells. And we're having a tremendous amount of trouble with the old black queen cell virus. You know, you hold them up to the light and there was dead queens or um, dead cells all over the place. And we tried and tried to, different ways to fix the problem. We eventually fixed the problem. We found out that the old guy that made the wax cells didn't like bees. He was a lovely old guy. He was a um, World War One veteran had been gassed in the war and didn't like the bees at all. So he used to just spray them with fly spray. And when we took the tin of fly spray away from him, all our black queen cell virus disappeared. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah so you wouldn't have expected that. Queens. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Um, okay. It's not always what you think it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right. So um, you you would say that you've only really changed your method um, with the, the use of plastic and the, the grafting tool that you're using. Apart from that, it's the same method that you've been using your whole life, which was taught to you by your dad. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, it's, it's John's... It's a very simple method. It's, it's not for raising, you know, thousands of queens or something, but just raising cells for the time of year you need them. It's nice and simple. Hmm. Um, now, just for the listeners here... And you don't here, need an incubator, your bees are there. All right. Yeah, excellent. Um, just for the listeners here, uh, John's dad, Ian, was a bit of a character. Um, he's not. He's not with us anymore, unfortunately. But um, I'm going to link in the show notes here to a podcast that he did back in 2015, which he tells a few funny stories about the family history. And yeah, a real character Ian was. Um, now, next question. Uh, what type of strain of bees are you using there? I like Italian bees. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a strain we've been, my family's been developing for well, our whole, you know, well over 60 years. Um, probably mostly based on bees from Braes down in Canterbury. Beautiful, quiet and productive bees. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely adapted to our own local environment. And we've tried to breed in resistant to wasps particularly. And just, just selecting, for, you know, selecting for high health and production. Right. And you, you can see the increase in production over the years by doing that. Right. And have you ever worked with uh, Apis mellifera mellifera, which I imagine was uh, in New Zealand uh, initially? We, we fought with those bees right up until we got Varroa. When I first went up on to work with my uncle on the Coromandel, probably most of the bees up there were like that. And they're just bloody awful, they have. Um, they'll produce a box of honey every year and they don't eat much but um, that's all you can say for them in a bad year they'll produce a box of honey in a really really good year they'll still only produce a box of honey they swarm, they sting um, they get really bad short brood um, they have no redeeming features at all 
I'm sure that the bees that I breed here have some genetics from them. In fact, I know they've got some genetics. You know, you can you keep what's good and you get rid of what's bad. But that's the biggest, the only real advantage of Varroa was it cleaned out the last of those um, AMM hives. They just are awful. I have no time for them at all. I now suffer from having a lot of neighbours with carniolans and pure carniolans aren't so bad but the, as soon as they cross with your bees you've got a nasty bee again mm. and you just don't need that sort of stuff. Mm. Okay. I can work my bees, take my veil off, hop in the truck. If I'm working around home and not in a hurry, I don't wear a veil. It's, um, you just don't need nasty bees, eh? Mm. No, that's true. Um, I, I try to, to, to have pretty calm bees these days. And it does make the experience yeah. a lot better, especially for your neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so on the topic of Varroa, what, sorry? Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, a few years ago, I went and stayed with a friend in England, and he's got some pretty pure AMMs, and they were every bit as nasty as I remember. Yeah, well, yeah. in England, they're, they're really trying to conserve the, uh, the black bee now, uh, and there's certain little pockets where they're really trying to bring it back. Yeah, they're mad. I work, <laughs> I work with them AMMs in England, and I work with Buckfast, and the Buckfast were beautiful, quiet, and productive. And these these blooming nasty black British bees, um, why? Why would you preserve something like that? Mm. Um, you know, what would what would you rather have for a pet, a nice nice collie dog or a dingo? You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, well, um, I mean, brother Adam, who who produced the uh, or made the uh, the Buckfast bee, um, he tried to not get any Apis mellifera mellifera in that batch. You know, he was he was because yeah. the, he believed that they were the they were not at all resistant to the tracheal mites, so he didn't want any of those yeah. genetics inside the Buckfast. Um, yeah, so he completely got he rid of it. Didn't like Carniolans either. Yeah, every time you crossed them with something, they go nasty. Yeah, well. Um, the basis of the Buckfast is, is sort of Italian with a few other things mixed in with it. Um, yeah. Mm, which is what he liked from the beginning. Yeah, no, I've got a lot of time and respect for Brother Adam. I, I never met him, but I've certainly read most of his books and watched a few of his videos. The one where he goes to Kilimanjaro is just yeah. fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Looking World for the, watching. the Monte Cola Bay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You watch the same one. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I love, I love that uh, that uh, documentary, The Monk and the Honeybee. Really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So um, on the topic of uh, Varroa, uh, let, yep. I mean, just just so the listeners know, at this particular time, as uh, John and I are chatting, um, Australia hasn't had Varroa. We've managed to dodge it for decades, but just in the last few weeks, we've had an incursion. And uh, we're sort of, uh, it's a bit up in the air. We're not sure if uh, we're going to be able to contain it and uh, eradicate it. Um, I'm sure in a few weeks from now, we'll know a lot more. But at, at this point in time, as we're talking, that we don't really know. It's sort of, we're not sure if they've got it under control. I'd like to see them have it under control. And I think the government's doing a great job. But uh, it's very up in the air at the moment. And because of that, in Australia, we don't know much about Varroa. But I'm sure we're about to find out. And I'd like to know what your opinion is, John. Um, New Zealand have had it for a bit over 20 years now, I think. Yep. I've had it for just under 20 years because we, we had movement control in place and managed to keep it out of Hawke's Bay for about three years. 
Um, and the big advantage of that is when it got here, we were able to talk to other beekeepers and already know how to deal with some of the problems. But after 20 years, it's becoming, every year it's become a worse problem. The longer you have Roa, the worse it gets. You guys might be lucky and you might have a, if you get Varroa that establishes it might be one that's not resistant to some of the treatments like the fluvalinates, but you might be unlucky and the Varroa you have there might, you might not even have any treatments that'll work on it. Um, I would kill half the hives in Australia and still think it was a good investment to get rid of Varroa. Um, right. Well, I'm not sure if you followed it. Um, but yeah. they are burning quite a few can you, hives can at you the moment. 50, 50 to $100 a year? Yeah. Um, but you don't need to burn hives, you just need to depopulate them. You, you know, varroa don't last long without a, without bees in them. Hmm. Um, you obviously have to kill the ferals, um, but you have to be you have to be hard. You can't... If you wait until, the, until they show signs of varroa before you eradicate your hives, you're never going to control it because you'll never find it when there's just one or two there. You've got to go, righto, how far can these bees fly? You know, 10 miles, righto, let's go out 50 miles and kill everything within 50 miles. Um, I don't know whether you'll make it or not, but I really hope you do, because, like I say, if you want to spend 50 to $100 a year in costs every year maintaining your hives, um, you know, it was all right for a while when honey prices are high. Last couple of years, honey prices have been really poor, and there are thousands of hives in New Zealand the last couple of years that have just been left to die. Uh, you know, you don't hear about it much, but uh, yeah. I saw some hives advertised the other day, 1,200 hives. You look in it and you find that um, they haven't been looked at for two years. Well, when I was growing up, if you, I, I brought hives that had been abandoned for a couple of years and most of them would still be alive. With Varroa, um, you haven't treated them within the last, well, people say 12 months it's more like these six months they're going to be dead full stop and with you've got small hive beetles as well which um, loves weak hives apparently and varroa is one of the best things you can find for weakening hives down other than killing them um, that's a nightmare you can you know if you cannot control varroa you can live with it but it is going to cost you an awful lot of money every year forever why is it um, that you say it gets worse every year? The longer you have varroa, the more varroa spread viruses in the hive. Um, they're already the viruses that you've already got, but the um, varroa make those viruses a lot worse. The bees get them; they tend to get them more intensely and much younger. The longer you have varroa, the more those, those viruses build up. The more they build up. It's the viruses that tend to kill the hives rather than the varroa. When we first got varroa, um, Mark Goodwin was doing some studies and he was, I remember talking to him and he was saying, oh, look, in America it takes this number of mites to kill a hive and in New Zealand we've got like 10 times the number of mites and the hives are still fine because the viruses hadn't built up. Now, um, you know, levels of varroa that hive would have survived, no trouble with a bit of treatment 10 years ago. Now that hive is just dead. This year, um, I took hives, came back to check them, and they were just dying. And I thought, oh, it must be resistance. Do an alcohol wash, no mites. For the next two months, those hives 
just kept losing bees. They went from two boxes of bees down to two or three frames of bees and and then started to recover very late in the autumn. It's just the virus is just killing your bees and killing your bees and killing your bees. Right. It's not something you want. Yeah, well, hopefully not. Um, what yeah. type of... Um... Well, don't, don't get too depressed about it, but it's um, if you can possibly control it and no matter what the expense, do so. Hmm. I mean, don't destroy your, your whole industry to get rid of it, but um, anything short of that is worth doing. Hmm. If you can't, my only other advice is if you can't control it, if you, if you find it's got away and it's just, just not possible, then take off all your moving controls um, and just learn to live with it because the only thing worse than Farah was the hassles of all the stuff we had to put up with. Right. Um, yeah, people are a bit nervous here in Australia at the moment because while it's winter, um, in a few weeks, uh, the almond pollination starts. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but that's a big thing in Australia. And big it's a um, yep. big, big thing. And it's uh, for, for a lot of commercial beekeepers, that's, that's their main thing that they're chasing each year, even, even more than honey. So um, that's meant to start in two weeks. And so everyone's a bit nervous about what's going to happen. And trying to trying to sort of follow what's happening with the with the government and the eradication but it's um very nervous nervous time time for the industry it should be it's um i can't give you too much advice on that except uh, if you decide that almond pollination has to go ahead and you take hives up there that have got varroa in them everybody's going to be bringing them home hmm. when we first got varroa um we first noticed it in a place where you'd expect natural spread, you know, spreading through um, bush areas, just through, um, you know, from areas oh, probably 100k away where there was hives through the bush, through, you know, through feral hives and stuff. They turned up in our hives and we saw it the odd mite in, in a couple of hives and we thought, oh, well, we might have to treat those in the autumn. This is in, in about Christmas time and come the autumn, we decided to just treat every hive we had, whether we could see mites or not, and that saved us a lot of hives. And by the next by the next autumn, there were um, just mites everywhere. Every single hive had mites. You, you know, it wasn't worth looking for. They were just there. Mm. Um, so what treatments That's have you used part. over the years? Um, on a commercial basis, I've just used Bavarol and... Apivar or Apitraz, you know, um, those are the two products that you can get in New Zealand in the strip form. Um, I've done a lot of experimenting with um, thymol products, which are they're moderately effective but not not wonderful, and they do tend to stress the hives. Um, oxalic acid, I've been doing quite a lot of experimenting with them because unfortunately the Synthetic pyrethroids no longer work in Hawke's Bay. Um, and one of the, they're the only one that we were allowed to use in an emergency situation when the honey crop was on the hives as well. You can't use apivar. And now we don't have that option. I have used um, formic acid, which is probably the most effective of the organic acids, but it's also one of the most dangerous. Um, it kills mites inside the brood, which is most of the other things don't, but it also seems to kill a fair few queens. 
um, fair few bees and it'll kill the grass out the front of your hive. Um, wow. It'll eat your fingernails and it'll make you blind and it'll rot your lungs out permanently. So, My goodness. Um, when they say use safety gear, they mean it. Yeah. You know, when you, you put the stuff on your hive and you come back and all the grass is dead out the front, you think, well, man, I don't know if I'd want to be in that hive if I was a bee. Mm. But it, it, it's probably ongoing. I think it's probably going to be our only option. I have had a few um, resistant queens from different breeders, including Ray Butler. Um, and there's nothing wrong with them, but there's been there's been a huge increase in beekeeping in New Zealand over the last 10 to 15 years. And a lot of, the, lot of it's sort of corporate beekeeping. And all they're really interested in is the bottom line. They're not interested in bee breeding, so... Um, they've just swamped the area with their hives. So even if you have your own breeding scheme, it just gets nowhere because you're just continuously being swamped in other people's, not necessarily bad genetics, but not good genetics. Um, I think if everybody in the country did nothing but select for um, resistant queens, we would be well there by now. But as it stands, we're not. It's... um, Having said that, any resistance you can get slows down the build-up of varroa, slows down the damage, makes it, you know, a little, you can have a longer period between treatments. It's all worthwhile, and in the end, it will be very worthwhile. Right. Um, so New Zealand has had a uh, varroa-sensitive hygiene program that was established after the incursion. Um, can you tell us a little bit yeah. about how that worked? Yeah, that was done by a friend of mine. Um they're just working, working with selection. They um, they were doing AI, but they also had an isolated island out in the Hariki Gulf where they could take bees and breed them naturally. Um, they did supply some breeder queens to the wider beekeeping community, but then because it's a science project, the government cut the funding, and the project just died. Um, in fact, it happened twice. It was sort of got going again, and then it, um, funding was cut again, and it died again. Unless you, you've got to have a program that's funded for the long term, and you've got to have a lot of buy-in. But you cannot expect it to work perfectly. It's unfortunately the resistance seems to be a cumulative gene, so you can have a queen that's a hundred percent resistant. They had within a few years they bred queens that were a hundred percent resistant. Uh, I, I say no trouble. It, it was a lot of work, but the gen, the genes, sorry, the genes will be in your hives in Australia. Mm. You will have resistant bees, um, and you can breed them. But when you raise their daughters, some of them will be a hundred percent, some of them will be zero percent, and some of them will be fifty percent. Mm. Um, until you make those genes dominant over the entire country, you won't get anywhere. Mm. But I believe that the um, the, the the gene for uh, for uh, for uh, sensitive hygiene it was uh, isolated from the the bees you've had in New Zealand. Is that right? Um, you didn't bring it in from anywhere. No, we didn't bring it in from anywhere. It, it's pretty commonly found in bee populations throughout the world. Um, I should say that science has moved on since I was really involved with it, and they now know a lot of the genes. You know, they can identify a lot of those genes, and it's possible now to test 
um, a lot more simply you can actually take a clipping of a of your um, virgin's wings and that sort of thing um, I think they can even take a bit of fluff off the queen's back these days they're so sensitive and you can test genetically to see whether the queen is um, resistant or not and that could be a real game changer it'll make the it just make it so much easier it's just such intensive work mm. trying to work out whether a queen is resistant or not all the counting of bra inside cells and that sort of thing it's just um, you know, it's practical for scientists to do. It's not very practical for ordinary beekeepers to do. Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose if um, if you were able to test uh, the young queens just after they've emerged and see if they are or not, it's still going to be open mated, which is going to cause more problems. So uh, I suppose you know it's difficult from that perspective as well. Um, actually, at the conference we had a science day right. Um, the, on the first day and some really interesting research into, gen into genetics is coming out and it appears that with bees, a lot of the characteristics, it's not a 50-50 split between the drones and the queens, it appears that queens sort of quite a few places, um, the female gene's quite, dom um, quite dominant. So it's possible that you get more influenced, well, from what their work is, you get more influence from the mother than from the father but if you can select your breeder queens um, you're getting a, a fair way there because when you put your doesn't matter what your queens mate with her sons are always going to only have her genetics hmm. so you can pretty you can pretty rapidly dominate an area with good genetics if everybody works together right yeah all right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for that, John. Is there anything else you'd like to add today? No, just good, good luck with Varroa. Look, guys, don't lose sleep over it. You can live with it if you have to. Um, if you if you can possibly destroy it, destroy it, because it's it's not something you want. But it's not the end of the world. It just, um, just feels like it for a while. Um, do study up on it. Do talk to people. I've probably lost... Uh, 25 hives in the last 20 years to Varroa, up till this year anyway, so um, you can live with it. Anyway, you have a good time in Australia, and I shall be over there in the next year or two in my retirement visiting a few people. I would like to see a few more beehives. It's one thing, if you come to New Zealand, especially now, you drive around, you see beehives in every second paddock. I don't know, when, every time I've been to Australia, especially out in the desert, you drive for days and days and days never see a thing <laughs> yeah but it's a beautiful country oh yeah thanks yeah. um all right well if you come over i'll have to give you a pot of uh, yellow gum honey uh from my bees and uh, you can have a look to it. yeah no to worries it. all right well until then yeah. um thanks a lot and um we'll talk again soon thanks john okay thanks a lot bye brent see ya Okay, well how good was that having a chat with John? He's a great bloke and he's got some fantastic stories. I really like that story he's got about having some bee boxes from his grandfather after 70 years. I'm also really looking forward to trying out his cell builder method where he grafts the cells and after two days he moves it cell builder and all out to the site. If you want to get in touch with John, you can at Berry Bees over there in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. And until next time, thanks so much for tuning in.